Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I'll be speaking with some of Australia's most brilliant innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into concrete reality. We had this strong sense that we couldn't fail. There was no way this couldn't work. Yeah, you know, we really respect our shareholders and, and to me, you survive if you add value. So, you know, I could look at it and say, so I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And so if you've got that ability to buy and sell and trade, some people have got it, some people will never get it. Some are household names and some you may never have heard of yet. On today's episode, I'm chatting to Tony and Josephine Sukar, a couple and co-founders of BuildCorp, a giant family-owned commercial construction company working along the eastern seaboard of Australia. They founded it in 1990, just the two of them. Now they have a staff of 350 people and revenues of over $600 million. Hope you enjoy it. Josephine and Tony Suka, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm thrilled to be able to speak to you. If I can ask you both first, what is BuildCorp? Short, sweet answer. Josephine, you start. It's a mid to large Australian construction company working across the Eastern Seaboard of Australia that participates in every construction sector. Yeah, I think every construction sector. I was going to say not residential, but we do have a small residential component. Yeah. Oh, really? You do yeah. have some residential. Tony, how do you see the company? Yes, so just on the residential piece, the only thing we do in that space, we don't build new residential, is build, we do remedial work. So we go in there and fix buildings that are recently built and constructed and have some of the defects we're seeing in the industry right now, anything from the ACP, the aluminium cladding piece, through to some of the structural defects you're seeing in some of these larger projects, which in itself is a set of issues that are got to be dealt with through design, through the way things are developed and financed. And the other piece is we're very much at the corporate end. A lot of our clients are institutions or companies listed on the stock exchange or professional services. Yeah. So, so in that remedial work, does that mean you're the sort of one of the trusted go-to companies to fix some of these shocking messes that we've seen, particularly in Sydney, but all over the East Coast? Yeah, we tend to find ourselves by the time we come on board, the, the owners and the, the owners' corporations are well and truly had enough of, of dealing with defects that are affecting the, their lives. So we're a welcome addition to the teams, albeit that we're quite invasive by the time we do arrive because we do sometimes either have them decant out of yeah. the building altogether or into small parts of their apartments. So you shoo, you've got to shoo them away, the the ones who've done the, the bad work, obviously. They don't get well, back usually, Well, usually they've left. So it's a specialist business unit. We have four business units here, and this one is called uh, BuildCorp Asset Solutions, and that's we come along and look after your property assets and provide solutions to where there are problems. And that's the only place we participate in the residential market. So some of the luxury apartments you might see around Sydney on the water 40 years on, concrete yes. cancer, yes. want to all of a sudden add some balconies to a 100-year-old building that had little windows facing the harbour. We come along and do those and the teams can either do them with people in 
situ. Could you imagine living in one of those? But that happens, but it also adds value to the asset. So those are often more of an uplift service. How do you go in and for 12 beautiful apartments or, you know, 30, go along and increase the value of that asset for them? So usually by the time we're out of there, the value of those apartments are significantly improved, which is great. And you build new buildings too. And we do new buildings, but not new residential buildings. No. How did you two first meet and get together? Yes, so we'd both graduated from New South Wales University and we both were invited by a relative each. My my sister was heading out on on this harbour cruise. She she was at New South Wales Uni and, and asked if I'd go along with her on this harbour cruise and then Josephine also got invited by her cousin and see whether she'd join him on the night. So we both just... And Sliding doors. On, you know, within 24 hours of, of the decision being made to attend this harbour cruise, met on, on the cruise and caught each other's eye and didn't have a lot to say to each other on the night other than uh, by the end of the night I got the courage up to, uh, to approach Josephine <laughs> and said, I want to give you your phone number. You we were be- young. I was 21. And literally, she gave me the phone number. Back in the days, we, we didn't have mobile phones that, that we know today. And, and I asked my sister if, if she'd remember half the number, and I remembered half the number. So, uh, no such thing as a pen in your pocket at that stage. <laughs> no, you so were too was, young to carry a pen and paper. pretty precious information that I wanted to keep. Oh, that's gorgeous. And then was it sort of from then on you never left each other's side or was it toing and froing for a little while, given that you were so young, Josephine? You said 21. Tony called and, and, you know, took me out to a movie and a dinner and a little bit at a time. It was a very gentle sort of slow start. I was still at university. I was finishing an honours year. Was I at the Garvin then? Yeah. I was studying an honours year in the Diabetes Research Unit at the Garvin Institute. So you were doing science? Mm, I graduated in physiology and pharmacology, double major, but I did an honours year in muscle metabolism during exercise at the Garvin that had a really great diabetes research unit and a component of that was interested in exercise physiology. So I was there and still had to finish and I was young and I think we probably realised about six months into it that this was serious and off we went and we were married a year later. Married? A year later, mm. so at what, 22 and a half or 23? year and a half, yeah, engaged. 22. I was married at 22 and Tony was 26. Wow. And you've obviously been an amazing team ever since. That teamwork, which is a, a great segue into what you've been doing now at Build Corp, but has it always been a team? Pretty much at every step of the way from the time we, we first met and, and then decided to engage and get married. We both had two to three jobs going at the same time. I was working for Civil and Civic, which was the construction arm of Lend-Lease at the time. Then Josephine came on board. We were after um, someone who could do administration work in between some of her other activities. And then she, that's her way into the construction industry, started on one of the sites. I was the site engineer and then the subsequent site was a senior site engineer on that project. And so you didn't have any building experience, Josephine, but you did move from sort of the sciencey area into building with that job? Yes. we. When we first married, I was, as Tony said, we were working lots of different jobs and one of the things I was doing was tutoring high school students in maths and science. And one of the lovely families I would see, their father was a real estate agent, a Greek real estate agent, and he was a lovely man and somebody Tony and I respected. Dennis Damien is his name and we sought his counsel frequently as the years went on. 
he said to me one Saturday when I was down there seeing his kids, he said, so I understand you're engaged, where are you going to live? And I said, oh, I guess we'll have to rent somewhere because I've got no money and Tony's just come back from a rugby tour and he's in debt. So, And he just hated the thought of us renting and oh, you can't rent us. Well, we don't have any money. And he actually said to me, I'd like to meet the boy. <laughs> and I can remember saying to Tony one night at dinner, so there's this father of a couple of kids I coach who uh, wants to meet you and he had a man-to-man conversation with Tony about why this would be a great idea and Tony carried the same message we just don't have any money and he said if I find somewhere can you work on it and he did he wanted you to buy it Mm -hmm. buy somewhere yeah and he found a little a tiny little four square house for us in Yawi Bay with a toilet and laundry outside one bedroom and it needed a lot of work but it had what he went on to always teach us to buy a great aspect and an opportunity to appreciate that location, location piece, but a, a pretty derelict little house and Tony and his father did it up and we went from there and he put us very early onto that property journey. We're very grateful. I want to step back a little bit further. What was each of your family life like? Tony, you, you came from a large family? A family of eight children, um, number four in, in the family. Ah, um, so you're the middle. Yeah. So my parents immigrated to Australia in 1956 with two young children, a one and a two-year-old. From Lebanon? From Lebanon. And they were from a village called Bashari, which is right up the high end of the mountains, quite, say, isolated, especially in winter where they get a lot of snow and near the cedars of Lebanon, the, they call them the holy cedars of Lebanon. And they they were farmers, some sheep and goat herders, and had an apple orchard in in the, the local village, but all very substance type um, living. And they immigrated in 1956 and found themselves here with two young children. And then slowly, you know, we grew as a family. Eight children later, all of them a, a big. Part of their life was to ensure we got a good education and they put us through the Catholic education system, which was right into the space where that they knew we were going to get very good education, but also, importantly, education around our, our faith, Christian and Catholic faith. So we're, we're of a Maronite background, which is a, a subset of the Catholic Church. So was it a classic, what we would regard in Australia, a classic immigrant childhood? They worked in factories. They did whatever they could to put us through our education and give us all the opportunities that we could or they could. At a point in time, though, they decided as their business, then my father did start a construction and development business, albeit quite small, which ended up going broke in in 1972 during the, the Goth Whitlam era where interest rates went out of control. Two years prior to that, I was sent to Lebanon when I was 11 on my own, so I went sent to boarding school, and that was partly to do with them wanting me to have a broader education, also to, to get a sense of where the, the family might potentially go back to Lebanon. So you were sent back to Lebanon to go to boarding school there at the age of 11? Correct, yeah. And wow, what was that experience like? Yeah, so initially excitement going to the airport on the plane for the first time and just found myself just going through a phase of going to boarding schools, then other siblings of mine joined me. We end up five of us over there. And Then why did you come back to Australia? Civil War started in 1975. So we were there. The war started in about May. 
1975 and by October we found our way back here and that in itself had its own little story where to get to the airport we had to find a way of because the, the city was shut down and shooting in various parts of it we were able to get on to a friend of ours who lived in the street. There was just the five, five of us over there, all at boarding school. So I was 16, my older sister was 18, and three younger siblings. So this particular gentleman who lived a couple of doors down from us in a suburb called Sinilfil had a crush on, on my sister Frida. And he was in the army, so he was able to organise for us a tank as you do, to get us in transport. To us, get you out. To get us to the airport. So, so you virtually had to flee yeah, in a tank. So that in itself, the tank could only take three of my siblings. So myself and my older sister were in a, in a, a driver with a driver in a car behind and whilst the tank had our three younger siblings in, in the tank. And we arrived safely, clearly, at the airport and, and got, got back out. in Australia. Was that yeah. a scary experience? As scary as it's sounding now? Yeah, it was, it was eerie as you're literally you're driving through the streets, albeit semi-protected by by the, the tank or the vision of the tank was really what was what was in front of it, not what was behind. But in the moment, you're there and you're making sure, and myself and Frida wanted to make sure our, our youngest were, were looked after and they were therefore in the position of the tank. But we arrived back in Australia and made contact with what I did um, with a lot of my rugby friends, which is probably uh, how the whole rugby piece sort of came about, where I played league and union when I was a kid before I left. So I was crazy about sport, all bit to massive disappointment my parents, where sport wasn't in their in their way of life. Really, um, right. No one really had played a sport, and no one in my family of eight kids played sport. So out of the eight, I was the only one to play sport. But I played league on a Saturday and rugby on a Sunday. And the first thing I did when I arrived back was make contact with a good mate of mine. So you came back and went to uni, but... Had your older siblings been to university? Or were you the first? I had to come back and finish school. Yeah, to finish school. school. Yeah, yeah, so I finished high school year 11 and 12. Were you expected to do well at school? Expected to do well, expected um, to go into a profession that wasn't in construction and the profession probably more so medicine or law, which probably wasn't, wasn't my passion. My f- first attempt at a degree was electrical engineering. Back then computing was starting to make its make its way and and the next big thing and decided, yep, I'll go off and do an electrical engineering degree and within six weeks I found that just wasn't there was no passion. Therefore I, mean, I was surrounded by very passionate young engineers and then pulled out of that degree before I got before I failed, went off and did labouring work, worked behind the bar number of things whilst I decided what the next phase would be and what that degree would be. And then that's when a construction degree at New South Wales Uni. I researched that and wandered down to New South Wales Uni from 1980 to 1983. So four years doing the building degree, which is counter to where Lebanese developers generally and builders, they were very much using their, their just knowledge and passion for development and construction, not based on a degree a degree yeah, so they foundation. Down on, a, on a degree, essentially. Yeah. Well, it wasn't. Yeah, a degree in construction wasn't something that they they felt was something that was worthy of where they thought I, I could go. Fast and forward. And to add insult to injury, then went and worked for somebody, which is a very 
hard thing for a lot of ethnic families to take. They like Meaning to be their own boss. You should always work for yourself. You should always work for yourself. And even working for Lend-Lease, and even though that process was so rigorous, mm. that interview process, and it was quite something to land a job with Lend-Lease in those days because weren't you the first non-civil engineer to yeah. Yeah, so land a... Yeah, so I had a building, a building degree rather than an engineering degree and... and Pretty much all of their graduates that they employed were engineering graduates because they were very focused on analytical thinking style uh, graduates. Oh, they were very smart, very uh, highly respected yep. company back then. Yep, and clearly So you today. were the first what? The non-engineering engineer degree-based graduate. That they hired? Yep. Fantastic. Josephine, your family, you said your father was a doctor. What was your experience as a kid? Did your family give you everything or were you was it tough at home? Were you expected to do very well at school or were you going to be the pampered daughter? I was the eldest of four and my father was probably Tony, the generation before, his parents, my grandparents emigrated on both sides of my family from Lebanon. So my father and mother arrived as primary school children to Australia. Mum went, family went to Wingham, uh, Nitari, the foster area, and dad's family were here in Newtown, actually, for most of the first 20 years of them being here, you know, moving around. They, like Tony's family, saw education as the key and the way out of poverty, like Tony's parents, my grandparents were subsistence living, really. Again, my grandfather was a farmer. The other one ran the local flour mill. We were from the same village in Lebanon, so the families knew each other, which was quite lovely. But I do remember my grandfather, Dad's father, articulating why education was so important really well. And he used to say to all of us grandchildren, it's the only thing that no one can take away from you once you've got it. They can take your home, your car, but they cannot take your education away from you. And and that was a, a tool I guess he wanted all of us to be equipped with. He founded a business, uh, Midford School Shirts. So the school shirts, we all went around in. That was my oh, yes, family's business. That. that was your family's business. Yeah. Oh. And um, all of the family at some stage worked there. In I used to work during my school holidays with my cousins. You know, when January would come, my grandfather and the family would need a hand to get all the school shirts out to all of the schools. And So in the factory, you'd be down there? We'd be down there up. in a warehouse packing. We'd be in the sewing room. I, one of my jobs was standing with the lady who was ironing and pressing all the shirts, putting plastic bags into them then into the warehouse and the boys would do the heavy lifting but at lunchtime my grandfather would bring us all in all of the grandchildren my grandmother would have made us a big lunch and feed us and off we'd go again but it kept our family very tight and I'm very still very close to my cousins and aunts and uncles. Would you say your father you said he started a small construction business that went broke in the building downturn of the early 70s. Was he business oriented? Was he a good businessman? Did he teach you everything? Or would you say honestly that you learnt how to be a businessman elsewhere? He was he was entrepreneurial and, and very optimistic, as most developers um, tend, tend to be, and was using the skills that he had. So with no formal education, both he and mum went to year, year six in terms of their education. So they you know, they very much learnt their skills as they went on in, in life. What, what they probably taught me about and, and my, my siblings is, is family, the importance of the values um, in life and looking after each other and things around trust and integrity and, and all the things that we in a lot of ways have founded our both our marriage and our business on you know, the family values that 
are just important to ensuring there is just stability in in the things you do and you've got a compass that that sets your path so you know um, continually if you keep doing the right things and you keep developing and improving and and doing the right things you will not deviate away from uh, and be distracted so from that viewpoint um, the skills that i've learned have really been the ones i've taken from mum and dad around family my skills around my business background has been through education and then the second degree, as I call it, was my time at Lendlease. A little bit more about values later because it obviously does imbue your business now. But Tony, when you were working for Civil and Civic or Lendlease back then, was that in Stuart Hornery's reign as CEO? And he was quite legendary after the legendary Dick Dusseldorp, of course. Correct, yeah. Briefly, what did you learn from them that then uh, helped you or has guided you perhaps even in later business life? So if um, if I look at the way they ran their projects, firstly, they were looking for innovation. So innovative superannuation was nearly one of the things that Dusseldorf brought into the construction industry. He introduced it, shareholding for all his employees, albeit a listed company, introduced a, a shareholding structure. So he was looking at a way of engaging his staff in ways that kept them so longevity and incentivizing them and tenure and and building that that trust piece with his staff and ensuring that it was a win win situation. So the way they managed and led their people, albeit right back to the inspiration and vision of, of Dusseldorf, through to the planning, the way they plan their projects to allow construction not only to be fast or high quality but very very safely so a lot of the things they introduced meant that the safety on site was enhanced through systems through prefabrication through creating ways of building a structure without it being more rudimentary and in pieces that they built a lot of it either off-site or created created situations and, and say, formwork systems that allowed speed but also captured a lot of the safety into the system itself. So, And that's how they were the leaders in the industry in the 70s, 80s and 90s and today have gone on beyond being just a builder. They're a developer and a financier. And, and so all. extraordinary discipline through every aspect of, of their business. Yeah, correct. And that very much gave me the foundation skills, which then led me to be in a position where I got asked by another company called Gervin to take on an offer with them and, and work for Gervin, which um, in itself only lasted just on two years because after a two-year period, Gervin went into into liquidation. But that's where Bill Corp pretty much started. Well, just it's, before it's we get story. to that, because there's a big leap there, because Gervin, for many who might be listening to this who are too young to remember them, it was a very famous collapse. And I vaguely remember it because I was only a child when it happened, of course. No, Gervin Corporation collapsed in the late 80s, went into liquidation, but I seem to remember a lot of subcontractors got really burnt in that. Now, What happened there? As I understand it, you were working on a particular project and it must have been very scarring and a traumatic time. But did you take over the project and that's how Build Corp started? Take us through that. So we'll probably go back maybe six months prior to that uh, because there's the element beforehand. So Gervin for probably nearly 12 months were, were showing signs of having financial troubles. And Sorry, is that because they were... 
growing too fast too quickly? They were growing fast quickly by um, what was nearly being said. We we're buying a company a week and they were diversifying into stockbroking. They were doing things that were just beyond. So they didn't listed probably, I'd say, three to four years beforehand. So their growth, so had a lot of cash at the time, but probably overspent. Went did some major projects such as what they called Market City, which is the old markets down at um, Haymarket. Haymarket, a project in North Sydney, which was the Optus Tower, uh, the project I was working on called Citadel Towers. Chatswood which, which, in Sydney, suburban yeah, Which area. we were able to, to clearly um, resurrect and, and save. And the other major one was called Chatswood Connection, which still today is being developed or has been developed. So it was building across the top of the railway line. That's a right. A platform to allow buildings and these these commercial complexes to be to be built. Their ta- first task was to invest in the infrastructure across the railway line. Once that was complete, they then r- would have received the, the rights to build in that airspace. They just never got to that point. So a lot of money going into that space, so sunk money until such time that they got to the end of it. So partway through um, that project, they went broke. Add to it, their growth was financial instability, not just in Australia, but around the world, real estate, commercial real estate prices halved. So what this might have been 1989. worth- 1989. 1989. Interest went, rates, the whole- And then when the receivership and the receivership end of January 1990, and we started Bill Corp in beginning of 1990. And how did you start Bill Corp? So six months earlier, we decided it was probably with what was happening- out in um, in the marketplace with Gervin, we formed a company. You and Josephine and could we, see this possibly coming. Correct. We, we always had a view that one day we wanted to start our own business, so that was um, the cornerstone to the to the thinking. But that fast forwarded what we thought a small business, probably starting um, in in a local suburb, through to kicking off our business on a eighty five million dollar project with a bit sort of different in in the level of thinking. However, the opportunity confronted us and we could either say, let's tackle this and and, and take it on and and have a look at whether we think we can. So we established a company. We thought of the name Bill Corp and and registered the name Bill Corp six months prior to the collapse and only on the basis that if something happened on that project, would we then approach the client who was a triumvirate, three companies, AGC being the finance, the finance company of Westpac, Konoiki, who are a Japanese construction company, and Seito. So the three of those companies um, formed a joint venture who were our client. And within 72 hours, we were able to convince them that we would be the right group to take over the project. That is amazing. Josephine, your first, you decide to build this company, to start this company. Your first project is taking over a failed project worth $85 million at that time, back in 1990, and you had to complete it. And just the two of you started this company. Were you completely mad? Or, I mean, in hindsight, now in the future, of course, you weren't mad, but were you mad at the time? Oh, I think there are a couple of other things that fed into that as well. We were both very young, so you don't know what you don't know, right? And you are able to take risks that you have time to recover from, which we would never do now at our age, right? But that said, 
we did want to start a small construction business and build that up. And I did end up spending some time on construction sites because when we went to the bank to try and apply for our first home loan that we were not able to get to secure our house, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was working on National Health and Medical Research Council grants that were current for a year or three years and the banks didn't see that as secure. So I took a job on a construction site where Tony was, where I had a secure income, which by the way, was paying almost twice as much as I was earning as a honours graduate in medical research, I know, but with always with a view to maybe one day going back to construction, not realising how much I would love the industry. And what we now know, I guess, a STEM skill set is what I have, I guess. It didn't take me very long to turn my mind to, well, I'm quite analytical, I think, and technical in how I approach things, which I guess is just that base training. And it didn't take me long to realise that I love the people in construction. Tony and I were ambitious as young people. We said, yep, let's do this together. You'll know how to build. I'll be able to manage it back end because it was going to be small and easy to do. Everything about the timing was wrong. Not only the timing, the economy, the size of that project. I was seven months pregnant with our first child and knew I wasn't going to be able to give Tony the time and it. So nothing about the timing was right. And we were halfway through renovating our home and a terrible storm had come through and the roof was off and had wiped out half of the work we'd already done. So we had to move out of the house and we're actually with my parents. So like most exciting journeys, the, the timing wasn't good, but it's that whole story about luck, right? As preparedness meeting opportunity. What was prepared were the structures. Tony was prepared on that particular project because it was the twin towers and he had the floor cycles. There are these typical floor cycles that you build in how you can deliver the structures of these floors. He had them down pat. And, and you were working on those towers. Tony was yes. the project manager on those towers and he had the team behind him. And what was happening once that um, the collapse happened before mobile phones, I was at home and a few of Tony's staff and some subcontractors, etc., knew our home phone number and I began to receive phone calls to say, look, we know Tony's busy, but we just want you to know I'm Joe, the whatever, I'm Sam, this. Wherever Tony goes, we're with him. Tony was receiving job offers from a lot of uh, big firms at the time to come along because he clearly had some skills he wanted and we knew that we had a team behind us and it was a time to go. So it was a bit of a brave leap, but a combination of a whole number of strange perfect storm fantastic and just for clarity so that yeah. we had two other partners who were minority partners with us at the time because in we Corp. in bill Corp. who were working on that project and yeah. th- because there was no way i could help tony i was yeah. two months out from having a baby and he really did have to run this on his own until you know three months out i said to tony i'll, I'll do the baby thing i'll organize that you run off and set this up and do this let's come baby. together you know in three months time and see how we both got on and thankfully we did, but we were very happy. How did you both get on? We were fine. The towers we were fine. got built the and the babies built. turned into a babies gorgeous are fine. And but, but I think too, it's probably fair to say the Lend-Lease piece for Tony, this drilling into his mind and my psyche, I think both of us from a very young, early stage, this piece around excellence. And the other what, piece... Going for quality, quality all, the all the time. Not it, cutting any corners, which not, of course we know in the building industry has been a problem. That's right. And, and it also built in our mind, even though we didn't have it, it had never set one up, this idea of working within a corporate type framework. So even from the day one, we had Baker and McKenzie write our head contract. I mean, we were young, but we knew what we needed to do to one day be solid and strong. So it built that 
sense of excellence. And the other piece was Gervin were very brave in some of the things they did, but one of the positive things they did when it was on that particular project, Citadel Towers, that Tony was running, they submitted, they were submitting that project for an Australian Quality Award and trying to look at how a construction company might be able to apply quality when they weren't building widgets. You know, how do we, you know, is this doable? And Tony led, led that. Now, when the the business ended up for that project winning an Australian Quality Award and Tony was then in, subsequently invited to be a judge of the Australian Quality Awards. So do you see what I mean when you're young and you, and you have a framework and a mindset of quality and excellence and it helps guide you when you – really probably for everything else we've done, it's probably fair to say. And to give credit, um, Gervin decided the project that I was running was going to be a pilot project for them to implement this quality management system called TQM and it was what was used in in Japan to help help resurrect Japan and its economy and therefore introduced into their manufacturing. After World War II to help them rebuild. So um, the whole continual improvement process improvement. So it, it is actually a management approach and practice that was applied which is why the quality of their, their motor vehicle industry and the electronic industry is so successful. It's off the back of, of this particular movement Discipline that, that, came out of the, that came out of the States via uh, Dr. Ed, Edward Deming. Yeah, amazing. You say when you started Build Corp, I mean, in a sense, you were thrust into it because of the circumstances, no doubt. You had perhaps pre-seen it a bit six months before, but you took on proper lawyers, Baker McKenzie, that sort of thing. Did you have a business plan or was it just, no, we're going to go for this tower, we're going to finish this job? Was there no sort of business plan that was carefully thought out? And planning and right back to my time Len Lease, very much the foundations of the way yeah. um, I was thinking and we were thinking back then, Josephine, with her, her medical research background, you, you, you plan your research projects and we plan our projects on site. So planning is in our is in our DNA. We had a plan to, if the event took place in, with Gervin collapsing, what would we do? So we had a plan. We had a business plan that took us beyond that point and once we finished that project we had a business plan and have been writing business plans and and strategic plans ever since and can continue to not only in terms of our own internal document but we also use them with our teams we present our plan to our teams twice a year and we report to them how we're traveling against the plan so a plan isn't just a document that's used by us individually we we engage with our teams around the plan we need we need their buy-in they've got to be part of um, the engagement around a plan so planning is absolutely all we do but we it's how you actually go about implementing and living that plan It's still very much a, a leap to start your own business. Just how did the money come about? Did you have to beg, borrow from banks, from family? Did you have a little bit of savings? Well, there's probably two bits. But, um, <laughs> one was our contract was a, what we call a construction manager, so the client was going to cash flow that project. Right. However, there was a short period of time, which I'll throw to Jason because she lived this particular situation around how we dealt with the very early cash flow piece. So we, having been at the coalface of a, a market that had interest rates creeping up to, what was it, 18.5%. And, By 1991, and, yeah, they were at 18.5%. That's right, and we were a young couple. And while we were entrepreneurial, that always comes with us, came with us with a backdrop of conservatism. So we worked so hard to 
pay our little triple-fronted fibro house in Gaimia Bay down before one of us pulled back, and that was me, to have the children. And I wanted to have some time at home with them, and that was important to me and, and to us. It was a decision we'd both made. But to do that, and I could see what was coming in the economy, I didn't want to be able to not service our debt, particularly if Tony came home one day without a job, which happened. So the bank manager at the Gaimia branch of the ANZ Bank was used to seeing me coming in every Friday, and we would bank save one of our salaries and pay our mortgage down and the other one we'd live off and we he could just see us really carefully managing the pennies and the pounds to secure ourselves and he I guess understood our conservative nature so when Tony finished negotiating with the client and the unions to take this job back over again and the most sensible approach for the client was to keep Tony and the team on board because I think you only lost three days didn't you in that cycle and kept oh, stra- straight yeah. back on again so it was a commercially sensible decision for them had to pay the unions to get the guys back and there was a $30,000, dollars $35,000 payment to the men on site that had to be made. He rang me at home, Tony, one day to say, I need $30,000 it was at the Chatswood branch of the ANZ Bank by lunchtime today. So I waddled down. I was very big, pregnant woman to the Gaimia branch, spoke to the bank manager who had seen me there every week and said, this is what's happened and this is what Tony needs at Chatswood by lunchtime. He said, that branch won't have $30,000 in cash. It was a lot of money then because, in fact, no single branch would. But you look terrible. (laughs) If you just leave it with me, I will make sure that I get for a number of banks around Sydney, I will make sure there's $30,000 there for Tony by the afternoon to pay the men and get the job going again tomorrow. So he did that and he said, I'll come around with the paperwork for you tomorrow, which he did. He brought it home and I signed everything off then. But those were the days we did business where our word was something, you know, and $30,000 was so material, one bank didn't hold apparently that much money and he said chats with They were still willing to give you that money, young Oh, I guess he had, you know, know, we didn't have a mortgage. We'd extinguished the mortgage by then. But it was was interesting, I guess, you know, he knew us. He'd been watching us for a little while. Have you kept good relations with banks all through? Have banks been part of Build Corps and your lives? they have. We've had Macquarie Bank, but we've been with Macquarie Bank for 28 years, 29 years now, and, you know, Commonwealth Bank. I think we do. We're, we've, as I said, this, it's this mix of conservatism and entrepreneurialism. Yeah. You, you have to take some risks. It, did, it hasn't taken long for us to realise we're optimistic but sensibly optimistic and we're forward-focused. And at that time we never saw anything other than hard work and being honest just people came along behind us and lifted us and saw that it, it, it sounds so basic and sounds so mum and dad and what you tell your it kids around the fireplace. It actually sounds too easy. And so it there was no risk or, or no real there, hurdle? Yeah. Of course there was what risk. What was the biggest risk? Well, on, on what do you project, think, Tom? So all of a sudden, you, I mean, so I take over a project which I was already doing, but then there's another layer. Suddenly you're running a company. There's no head office. There's no one making payments for you and your staff. You have no other systems that you're relying on. You're having to develop all of this pretty quickly. So we on the run. So we pretty much pulled systems and structures together in the first two to three months to allow us not only to continue to run the project as a as we would normally run a project, but to have this this structural overlay which would come from a a head office so that was the first thing that we and we brought someone in to help us to do that Uh, a couple of members that weren't part of my construction team to give us that infrastructure and administration and the like and the next piece is out of Gervin's head office right I pay mistress a CFO 
Okay, so some key sort of executives out of Durban who you trusted. Yeah, so that was a layer to sit over the top of what is a project. Yeah. And then we started to build these other layers to allow us to start to build a business that was more multi-project based. And we're then starting to talk about pay systems, administration systems, planning systems, safety systems, HR systems, all all (laughs) of them are things that whilst might have had some exposure to, albeit via a phone call or a fax or back then not an email, then we had to start to develop those. And we've been very focused on our systems ever since those days, and a lot of them were paper-driven. Back in then 2007, we, for the first time, embarked upon building our intranet. And you think, and today, 13 years ago, you'd think, surely that goes back a long time. It's just yesterday. We had to embark on whether we we have an intranet in itself. We spent nearly $2 million building that for, and that was right at the beginning of the GFC. Unbeknownst to us, the GFC was coming and we'd already started on that that process. But even... But you build what you need when you need it, don't you reckon? And when you can afford it. So there are a whole bunch of things that we would have loved day one. We would have loved a business development manager to help us bring new work in. We had Mm. to do that. We would have loved a HR manager. It would have been great to have someone managing, I don't know, the mobile phone accounts when they came in. But really everyone seemed to muck in more broadly. For, you know, even me at home with the kids. To every, everyone went like any small business. Everyone rolls their sleeves up and does everything. And then when you can afford the luxury of, wow, it'd be great to have a business development manager. You, you know, you you do what you have to do, and then bring in those resources. Join me next episode in Build It Thou Come for part two of my interview with Tony and Josephine Sukar. I hope you enjoyed Build It Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating or a review. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.